Epilogue, A Second Death. In Irvin Yalom's book, Love's Executioner and Other Tales of Psychotherapy, he has a section that reads, Someday soon, perhaps in 40 years, there'll be no one alive who has ever known me. That's when I will truly be dead, when I exist in no one's memory. This quote really stuck with us, this idea of a second death. What responsibility do we have with the knowledge we earn in our lives, the lessons, the people, the events we keep with us? How do we best pass on our ideas to ensure our history is represented accurately? And what does it mean if that history becomes tainted with misinformation? Do we adapt and accept, or do we push back and work to set the record straight? Another thing that we thought was important to remember is what the legacy of the Tuskegee study is and the kinds of practical changes made as a result of the Tuskegee syphilis study. I think the lasting legacy is the impact it had on um, the push toward um, rules around bioethics and a questioning of the... Um, a friend of mine was going to write a book called The Death of the M. Deity. So, you know, I think it helped um, along with the... Um, what was going on at the Willowbrook School for um, Mentally Retarded Children and the Jewish Conduct Disease Hospital, what I used to call the holy trinity of, of early bioethics, was increasing realization that even the good guys in medicine could make terrible mistakes and that we had to have a set of kind of rules and regulations to control it, that we couldn't just assume that men of good character, and it wasn't really assumed it was men of good character, would do medicine correctly. Um, so I think the lasting legacy of Tuskegee in that sense is the rise of bioethics. Um, and I think secondly, it really helped people understand the way racism in medicine worked. But not everything that came out of the study was positive. And it's a rather terrifying offshoot of this is that the story, the stories I wrote inadvertently created among many black, in, within many black communities, a deep and abiding distrust of doctors, particularly white doctors. And that has, that exists even today. That damage manifested during the AIDS crisis where up to 30% of black people believed or were unsure if the HIV-AIDS crisis was a government plot against the black community. The other thing about the study that happened was in the early 90s, when, um, late 80s, early 90s, um, two medical educators did a very small snowball sample, this is Steve Thomas and Sandra Quinn, of um, people around why black men, in particular in Atlanta, weren't getting AIDS treatment or weren't going for AIDS. And then Tuskegee became one of the answers to that. And that idea that somehow Tuskegee, in memory of the study, is the reason that black folks don't go, don't join research studies, don't go, um, don't go to doctors, gets repeated endlessly by researchers. Um, without much evidence at all. And some people have done some other work which showed that it wasn't really true. But that idea that all you had to do, and I have tried to argue that even if people say Tuskegee, what they're really saying is it's about racism. So they may know nothing about the study if they even use the term. But I think most people, and there are lots and lots of reasons why black folks don't access medical care or don't join research studies, and Tuskegee is the least of those reasons, right. unless it's a metaphor for 
all the other reasons. I mean, I've argued that what happened to grandma last week in the, in the emergency room is much more important, right? And it's also about accumulated experiences in your lifetime of, of the way race plays itself out. And, you know, especially in the medical field where there's still this unbelievable assumption that there's a biological difference between black people and white people. And so you just get this constantly. My, my husband is African-American. And of course, we cannot forget the level of misinformation that has proliferated our shared memory about the study. And again, it's not some vast conspiracy to hide the truth, but rather a simplification of a very complicated event. Dr. Susan M. Reverby's book, A Huge Influence on Our Research, in this show, challenges us to rethink almost everything we knew, not just about the popular understanding of the study, but how moments are framed to evoke a feeling or play to a story. We have to be critical and ask questions, even if it's maybe a part of the bedrock of our understanding of the story that is the Tuskegee syphilis study. Right. So here's the interesting thing about Mr. Shaw, who becomes, so Herman Shaw, who who died in his mid-90s, was the spokesman for the men when we got the apology at the White House. And He's a central figure in the way the story gets told for the following reasons. At one point, right after World War II, um, he says in his testimony at the Senate hearings that Ted Kennedy held, um, and it shows up in Miss Everest Boys, which is the fictionalization of the study. It's in a number of the films. So Mr. Shaw gets told by someone in Tuskegee that he should go to Birmingham and get um, treated. So he goes to Birmingham and he gets in the line there, and this is very vivid in the film and in the play as well. And someone calls out his name and, and pulls him out of the line and tells him that he can't be there and that he has to go back to Tuskegee. So I think, as I wrote in the book, um, I think what the image really is, it's almost as if here he is caught in this medical slavery in Tuskegee. Someone sends him north of the, you know, the medical Mason-Dixon line. He is an escaped medical slave in some sense. He gets out, and then he's caught, right, and sent back home. So, you know, it's a pretty horrifying image of even the person who gets out can't get out, right? So you get this sense of a kind of concentration camp, trap, slave imagery, which we carry with us a lot around issues of both medical ethics because of Nuremberg and also because of the importance of slavery, right, to the African-American experience. But the reality was that when Mr. So there are two questions. One is, Mr. Shaw says, they sent me to Birmingham. And I couldn't get him explained to me clearly enough, and no one else had tried to ask him, who's the they, right? So the first question is, someone told him, therefore, that he had syphilis. Someone told him to go to Birmingham to be treated. Who was that? How did he get out in the first place? So there's that question. And then the reality is when he went to the Rapid Treatment Center, which is what it was called in Birmingham, no one who was thought to be in late latency, that is no longer contagious, was being treated. So he could have been sent home because they knew he was in the study, but also because they knew that therefore he was supposedly late latency, not contagious. And there's, this is a period where we still have very little penicillin. They would have saved it for someone who was in danger of of passing the disease on to somebody else. Because even at that time, it was not even considered, you know, common practice to have penicillin for late latent syphilis. That's right. Because he's right, exactly. Because or it was done on an individual basis. So you know, they could have done some kind of evaluation. But 
at that point, they really still weren't. I mean, not until the 50s do they really start using penicillin more widely. And this is right after the war when penicillin is still difficult to get, you know, not so easy. So those issues. And then, even more complicated this, in the mid-50s, he gets pneumonia. So he gets pneumonia and he's hospitalized. He's from this little town called Palisade, which is about 10 or 15 miles north of Tuskegee. And he um, goes to the hospital in Calgary, and he gets IV penicillin for 10 days. <laughs> so here's the man who, on, in the fictional, in, in the fictional, both in the fictionalized and in many ways in the public version of the story, is the poster man for how horrible the case is. Because of course he gets sent home, and in other ways, of course, he's the poster man for what really happened which is, did some of the men actually get out? You know, how many did? Is he the only one who someone was, was told to get help? Um, who told him? And that's how the story gets so much more complicated. We've spent a lot of time talking about what the misrepresentations are and what effects it may have, but we haven't really spent the time to talk about maybe the how or the when misinformation starts. Gene Heller told us a story during our interview and we thought it perfectly represented how misinformation is formed. I mean, I, I was at home in Ohio. Um, I was back home with my parents for some reason. And their best friend came over to say hello. And he was a very exceptional OBGYN MD. Um, a, a, a very principled man and I was telling them about the story which was about to break and he refused to believe that it was true he'd never heard of it and he was my parents age so he was he was a sentient being at the end of World War II and he just he just refused to believe that anything like that would happen in this country and I never mentioned it again because he was so upset that I would think that it was true. And it appeared, the story when it broke appeared on the front page of virtually every newspaper in this country and many in foreign countries. And it also appeared on the front page of my hometown paper. So he saw it, but he never mentioned it to me again. We always blame the news, books, pundits on TV, everyone else, instead of maybe taking the time to realize that while these influences are there, it's up to us in that moment to accept something as truth or fiction. And once we've made that decision, it is hard to change. So maybe instead of rushing to judgment, we should take the time to consider information from credible sources. It may be tedious and less entertaining than a movie, but it prevents history from being distorted. Our reactions to that intersection of history and media is up to us, each and every one of us individually. As much as we look to blame a film, the news, podcasts, or even books for giving us the wrong information, it is us who stop that journey of learning. We can only blame our own ambition, not the resources we have. Susan M. Reverby is the perfect example of someone who is proud of the knowledge she has attained and the kind of work that she has been able to do with her research. I, I, I think it was um, a real privilege to write on this study. I, I actually believe what I told the families in Tuskegee that I 
feel a responsibility to make what happened to their ancestors um, known and not forgotten. Um, that that kind of sacrifice that they made unknowingly um, is really important. And I think it's a way to understand the way racism works um, in America um, and the role that medicine plays in the perpetuation of racism. So, you know, as a thinking, breathing human being in this country and a responsible citizen, I feel like I had, the, I had a real privilege to make my work matter, I hope. Um, and so um, I think that, that, that's how it feels for me. I felt like it really got to participate in a kind of anti-racism um, anti-racism work. I mean, I worked in the civil rights movement um, in the 60s. I worked for King in Chicago. Amazing. Um, in 1966. Yeah, it was really... And I worked during the struggle over the community controls of the New York City public schools in the late 60s. So, you know, I've been involved, but this allowed me to really do historians, historical work, to use my skills as a historian um, in a kind of anti-racist manner. And, you know, that's that that feels really good. I mean, I feel like it was important work. I helped get the apology. You know, I was part of the committee that got the apology to the community. Um, you know, and I just think these things matter. And it's you know, most of us write stuff for ten other historians. You know, most of the time, and so it's nice to feel like the work really mattered to people and had some impact. What more could you ask? I mean, you can't ask for anything else. And the importance of asking questions and digging deeper to understand the world around us, we must learn from our mistakes because if we don't remember our history, we're doomed to repeat it. Or even worse, if we remember the wrong history... Well, then we won't really look at the root causes. So I think that that's why the real history matters because then it explains how our country works, how medicine works, how research works, how race, another way to understand how racism perpetuates itself so if we don't learn it correctly then we'll never understand why it ha the why because if you don't have the facts then you don't you don't know which why to look for i guess that's the way i would think about it the study of 1932, the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Thank you for listening, and we hope you learned something new during the broadcast. The Study of 1932 is a production of WCUG Cougar Radio and PAC Media Network. We wanted to thank Dr. Susan M. Reverby, Professor Emerita from Wellesley College, for her time, a wonderful interview, and her support on this project, as well as the excellent book she wrote, Examining Tuskegee. Thanks to Jean Heller, mystery novelist and AP writer, who broke the story on Tuskegee. We appreciate you making the time amidst your busy schedule and book release. We used James Jones's Bad Blood and Fred Gray's The Tuskegee Syphilis Study, excellent books for research that were immensely helpful in the production for our show. Special thanks to the student staff of WCUG. Matt, Lewis, Logan, and show. As well as our faculty advisor, Dr. Bruce Getz and Department Chair Dr. Dana Gibson for their production assistance, mentorship, supervision, and allowing us to air this show. 
Production and script by Sho Irakawa and Raina Thompson. Editing, sound design, and music by Sho Irakawa with help from Raina Thompson. Thank you so much for listening and taking this journey with us. Be good and be safe. Be excellent to each other. Love yourself and others. I'm Raina. And I'm Sho. And this has been the study of 1932.